Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Fifth Quarter Podcast with me, David Elliott from Lanyon Group. We're brought to you this month with the support of Armagh City, Banbridge and Craig Borough Council's Food Heartland. This podcast will be getting beneath the surface of the Northern Ireland agri-food industry, talking to the personalities behind some of our most innovative businesses, from global PLCs to startups, from household names, even to kitchen production lines. It's those innovations which we're most interested in, the ideas, the added value, or indeed the fifth quarter, which gives those businesses the edge, hence the name of this podcast. We'll be talking to the experts behind the big issues of the day, finding out what opportunities there are in an increasingly global marketplace, and helping share learnings to help overcome the myriad of challenges the agri-food sector currently faces. It's hard to think of a bigger challenge this sector's faced than Brexit, and with that in mind, our first episode hangs its hat on that most taxing of issues. Later, we'll be chatting to Michael Bell from the Northern Ireland Food and Drink Association about how the organisation's members are coping now that the transition period has ended. And then we'll be hearing from a brilliant artisan chocolate business from just outside Lurgan. First, we're going to talk to Richard Kennedy. He's the chief executive of Devonish as an example of the ingenuity, innovation and sheer determination which can be found in our agri-food sector. There can be few better company examples than Devonish and few better individual examples than Richard. He talks about the company's journey to be a global leader in animal nutrition and his own journey as an influential leader. Richard, Devonish is a big name in the Northern Ireland business world, in the Northern Ireland agri-food world. Can you give us, for maybe people that don't know anything about the company or have only heard about it in passing, can you give us the elevator pitch for Devonish Nutrition? Well, I'll do my very best, uh, David. I suppose, um, you know, nowadays um, it's all very topical, this whole idea of sustainability and, you know, that we have to ensure that um, we leave the world in a better place than we found it, never mind as good. And um, over the years, uh, I suppose, we've managed to get our business uh, to provide uh, solutions that deliver that um, and and some of it was by accident some of it was by design uh, but I suppose most of it was by that absolute um, drive and determination to identify in the marketplace where and what is required uh, also to always keep an eye on the future and see well are we um, and is our strategy reflecting the direction of travel of the industry we're involved in and the industry we're involved in is is, is food uh, and agri-food but um, when we talk about agri-food and sustainability it, it really is about nutrients now what I mean by that is you know people talk about carbon carbon is a nutrient um, nitrogen um, you know um, uh, carbon dioxide, all of these um, nutrients, um, vitamins, minerals, and, and that's where we started. So back in 1998, when we acquired the business, it became um, very obvious that because of um, the global competition we faced, if we wanted to develop a business, we had to address the market um, from uh, a different position and in a different way. So, you know, we we set out to be disruptors and have continually been disruptors. So that meant that uh, we, we had to bring something different to customers, uh, to potential customers and, and to the market. And uh, I suppose then we looked at what we were 
uh, and what the, I suppose, when I say what we were, the main protagonist in the business. And we, we, we were and are nutritionists. Now, historically, that would have been and meant that we were animal nutritionists. So we formulated diets and we manufactured um, micronutrient products which were added to feed that balanced the feed to make sure the animals had the right nutrients and that they were healthy and, and those animals then performed. But then we noticed that, you know, with that, that production, it had, uh, you know, just providing the nutrients had an impact across uh, or further down the supply chain. And, um, you know, ultimately, uh, food is consumed, hence the name consumer. And the consumer demands were for better quality food and for um, more food and, 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 and other demands as, as the years evolve. But now consumers and the world is demanding that that food is produced in a sustainable way. And we see in, uh, you know, 2050 that we're going to ha- need more food, uh, produce as much food between now and then as we've produced in the last 15,000 years. So we know that there, but the demand is going to be and the expectation is that it's sustainable and that it won't damage the um, environment. Uh, And that means the most effective and efficient utilization of nutrients. And that's what we set out to do. So what we do is we develop and deploy solutions um, through um, research, development, and innovation, which ensure the most effective and efficient utilization of nutrients in the production of food. That not alone means that we um, look to produce food and use those nutrients. We also look to see how we can sequester, um, mitigate, uh, or even um, store those nutrients in a more effective way. So we see that we have solutions now to deliver sustainable food production across meat, milk, and eggs. And not alone that, but on that journey, we also discover that we can have a really significant impact by ensuring the correct nutrients are added. So our work on omega-3 displays that, that when you um, um, provide food with the correct nutrients for the animals, the animals consume that, and and that's better for them, better for their welfare, better for their health. Um, The people who consume that food, um, it's better for them, better for their health, better for the environment. Uh, and uh, therefore, we can have that influence uh, right down the supply chain. So for us, that's our that's what we do. We are a sustainable uh, nutritional business focused on uh, one health from soil all the way to society. 30 years ago, I, I can remember using um, Devonish minerals um, on, on our family farm to mix uh, pig meal to mix. We had a we had a, 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 a mixing plant. Um, how has the company's outlook changed from back then where I suppose you were you were su- supplying a product specifically for uh, the needs of a farmer? Are you saying that that, that outlook of the company has now widened to actually uh, and gone further down the food chain to find out exactly what the consumer that then were eating, the pigs that we were producing? Well, I, I, I don't think, David, to be honest with you, I don't think it's any different. I think back then the consumer wanted what what was produced. You know, the consumer won't buy it. I think what we now know is, though, and we are also very strong on, is the contribution the farmer makes to that. You know, um, scope three um, emissions um, uh, is where the most significant emissions are in food chain. And that's at farmer level. But I see that as an opportunity. 
because farmers should get recognized for all the good things they do. And as I say, that's where we have our influence. You know, we work with farmers to make their um, their um, enterprises and their food production uh, systems more efficient. So I think, uh, as I said, uh, whether it was by accident or by design, uh, that's where we can have most influence at production. Um, all of our our innovations are delivered inside the farm gate. And therefore, uh, that's why we would feel that the farmers are key to this. What do you put that success down to for, for Devonish? Is, is it that ability to continue to evolve and, and to continue to disrupt a market, which, you know, in many respects, it was, was quite um, staid uh, prior, to, prior to Devonish coming along? And how can you continue to grow in, in this current environment, which is already disrupted by so many other factors? Well, I suppose um, what I put it down to is we have no choice. That's the, that's what we set out to do. You know, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, uh, it's 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 a little bit like a customer said to us a long time ago. He says, you know, when you get into the ring, uh, you have to box, and this is the ring we got into. Um, uh, and and I suppose it's 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 we just simply had to. It's what we chose to do. It's where we see, you know, our where we we have had our training, and it's where we we know the market and we see the opportunity. Um, we don't always take the easiest path, uh, which is a challenge uh, for we we'll for all of us. And I have to call out and recognise um, my colleagues, um, the people who have put the trust in us and put their trust in in me and and others in the business. They look to us for leadership. And then because of that, they commit uh, to delivering. And, and, and we have some, you know, all of my colleagues have, have tremendous innovative um, spirit and culture in them. And I suppose that's what that I see my job, uh, David, is to um, ensure that we um, encourage that, enthuse it, provide the environment for them to express that ability. And, you know, that all has come out of Northern Ireland. And that entrepreneurial enthusiasm uh, and appetite for the challenge, uh, you know, is one of the things that I would say has made a huge difference for us. And uh, I've always said, you know, that Northern Ireland provided the, the foundation and basis for that. And I don't think we could have done that anywhere else in the world. Northern Ireland there having having a very specific um, traits, but in the current environment, we're you know we're speaking in January here, a few weeks after uh, the transition period ended. Um, Northern Ireland finds itself in a very interesting um, interesting position. How has Brexit impacted your business in the last few weeks? I mean, uh, and, and how is it going to impact it in the in the future? Well, in the last few weeks, for the first time in four years, we know what's happening. You know, so there's a certainty, and the certainty is the Brexit has happened. And we're we're now on the road. You know, we've four years waiting to see what the road looked like, and the road now is Brexit. We know the the, the parameters. There are going to be challenges, but at least there's a certainty. The uncertainty, um, I see it as uh, the uncertainty. David did hurt us and really hurt us, um, because you didn't know how or where you were put your foot. Was that ground solid under your feet? Would it be pulled away from you? You know, we, we've forgotten that two or three weeks before, uh, sorry, a week before Brexit was to be implemented a couple of, uh, last year or the year before, um, you know, we got to uh, uh, a cliff edge um, on the Friday before, and, and that was mayhem. Um, but now we have an agreement and we're moving on, and that's 
to me, that's all business wants is certainty. You know, good certainty or bad certainty, at least it's certainty. Uh, so I think, you know, we now have um, light at the end of the tunnel and it is light and it is the end of the tunnel and it's not a, a train coming at you. So I I'm just want to drive into this and, and, and that's the sense in the business. Uh, and, and, and yes, there have been challenges in the last couple of weeks. We, we've seen issues with product coming in, but we've found ways around that. Uh, you know, I have incredibly resilient colleagues uh, and, uh, you know, and, and people in our business and, and um, they, no matter what, uh, you know, what challenge, whatever they wake up to, whether it's Brexit or COVID or, uh, you know, fires or whatever, because we had a major fire uh, last November, 12 months, uh, that'd be uh, November 19. And, uh, you know, to, 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 to what my colleagues did uh, is incredible. You know, one of, one, of our, one, of, one of my colleagues actually didn't go home or go to bed for four days running after the fire and kept, kept the, you know, that, that we never asked him. We didn't know until afterwards, you know, he was, he was the same man was, uh, wasn't even falling asleep, but he did look a bit raggy uh, at that stage. So he, um, he says, what's wrong? He says, well, it just didn't have got a lot of sleep in the last while. So, you know, that that's the sort of thing, uh, the resilience. And that's, again, you know, we, we, we underestimate that in Northern Ireland, the resilience of people. You know, we've always had challenges in Northern Ireland. Um, and yet there's a resilience in, in, a, in all of us, and particularly in Northern Ireland, that you don't find elsewhere. Yeah, and, and certainly the fire must have been a, a testing one for for everybody. But I suppose those kind of shows of resilience re- really, really, really do highlight how uh, a team can pull together and can really uh, end up, you know, finding that that there's some some as you say light at the end of the tunnel in those situations. Um, Richard, I, I just want to want to ask you about you. You trade the the business trades pretty globally anyway, and you're you're, you're trading right throughout um, the the world. What advice would you give? Because export is such a huge thing for agri-food companies here. What advice would you give to other companies that are hoping to break into export markets? Because doing it's one thing, but breaking into a new market is so difficult. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, important to identify the lower hurdles, you know. So don't don't go to the hardest market in the world. You know, we've, we've looked at a number of markets where we've simply said we're not going, uh, purely and simply because they're too difficult. But we have also looked at other markets and said, well, have we links there? Do we know someone? Have we some sense or are there, you know, are there connections, uh, you know, whether it would be connections with um, uh, the UK, whether it would be connections with the with ROI um, and, and uh, or would it be personal connections? Would we know somebody who had gone there? So so th- that's the, probably the first thing. Go after the low hanging fruit, but definitely go after it. And, and I think the, 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 the most important thing I would say is. Um, turn over every stone. So internally in the business, examine where else could you sell? Because, you know, that's the one thing we would we would see that the scale, you know, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and then um, GB, they're all, you know, one bigger than the other in terms of market market size. Mm-hmm. And and then Europe and, 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 you know, we have all of the you see all of those. Don't forget, it's not difficult to replicate or find a market the same size as, as Northern Ireland or the Republic of Ireland. And if your products are relevant or if you need to tweak them, you could find something that gives you a really significant opening and opportunity. And that's what I say, you know, scratch the surface, have a look, see are there links, 
you know, um, uh, Europe and and and. Uh, the, you know, the UK and Ireland has become a much more cosmopolitan place. You know, people, we, 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 we started off in Belfast with um, 27 people, 23 people. We now have over 23, 24 nationalities working with us. And, uh, you know, one of those guys was a, a guy from Mexico who worked with us in the U.S. He had connections in Mexico. All of a sudden, we opened up doors in Mexico. And now we've, we have a business in Mexico and a manufacturing facility. So that's, you know, that's something. We had some colleagues who, who had worked in Turkey. Um, they knew the, mar- the marketplace. They could go in. We opened up there. That's, you know, what I would say most of all. Don't, don't go after the difficult ones. See what, what are the lowest, um, the lowest hurdles you have to cross or if there are links there that you can benefit from. I think that's some really, you know, really key advice because I think export. When you mention export to, to people who maybe don't do it, they they kind of they clam up a bit and, and and get worried that it sounds so frightening. But as you say, just follow the follow the low hanging fruit, and and if you have any connections there, um, chase after it. I'm interested um, to know a little bit more about the. You've done a, a recent deal in in Jamaica of all places, um, and certainly an interesting one in how, how you managed to, to end up there with Caribbean broilers, I believe. Yeah, well, I suppose, David, that was, that was, um, David, that was a very, that was very similar. You know, um, we, we, we made a connection with, a, and, and, and had some business in the U.S. with um, a, a principal in a, in a business, and he moved to Jamaica, uh, and he knew the technology we had and the solutions we brought were, had brought him value in the U.S., and we opened up the conversations, and that's how that developed. And he introduced us to Caribbean broilers. He was working for Caribbean broilers, and he introduced us. We we had to go and prove our our wares, and now we have uh, you know done that over the years and cemented a very long relationship. But it's as I said to you, it's most of these um, are are fairly simple. Uh, but but you have to have you know your head up. I suppose you have to be willing to go and chase it if you like. Go so go after it. Um, on another note, and in a kind of a global note, how, how is Northern Ireland's agri-food market, or Northern Ireland as a, as a whole, as a, as a market viewed in the global marketplace? Um, are we are we known about? Do they do they know what we have to offer? Um, do they see us as 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 part of the UK? Do they see us as part of Ireland? What, what you know, and, and does it does it matter? Do we just need to go out there and sell ourselves a bit more? Um, I, I, I think I think. Um, you know, if, if, if I was to ask our customers in, in, in various parts of the world who don't have a connection, whether it's Asia or even Mexico or whatever, what's Northern Ireland or otherwise, um, uh, or how is it perceived, they, 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 they wouldn't be able to define Northern Ireland. Um, uh, and, and we capitalize on that. So if it's more suitable to play our GB card, we play it. If we're more suitable to play our Ireland card, we play it. But it's, you know, it's part of the island of Ireland. It's part of the, you know, whatever, you know, we, we can maximize that, uh, we will. Or wherever we can maximize uh, or whatever position we can maximize, we will. And we will. Have, why wouldn't we? Uh, and I think, you know, again, that has been a part of our success um that we we you know the island of ireland is perceived as a as a, as a, a very strong angry, agri food um uh, power or, or you know it, it, the, the brand is really strong um the fact that it has you know the island of ireland has supplied 
uh, GB for years and now, you know, Europe, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, gives, gives us a, a really, really significant uh, strength because it, it shows that the standards, the 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 uh, authenticity and the reality you know it's 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 like a track record we've done it and uh, we continue to do it we supply to the highest global standards of western europe uh, and produce food uh, under those circumstances um so it's really positive uh, wherever we go it never would close a door it always opens doors for us so northern ireland opens doors for us always yeah really interesting really interesting um Richard, I just want to um, sort of end on on your role within the company, and you know you've 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 been with the company for quite a number of years. You've done pretty well in the EY Entrepreneur of the Year, uh, and so putting it lightly, um, this year. But probably, I can't imagine you were expecting to face the challenges that uh, COVID has thrown up over the last few months. What's it like for you as a leader? Of, of one of Northern Ireland's biggest agri agri food type companies, what's it been like managing through that, and and what have you what have you learned from it? Um, it's been it's been um, I suppose David, <laughs> what's it been like? I've never even considered that question. It's been what I signed up for, but it also has been really really. Um, inspiring because what i've seen our people do um how and this is back to the resilience piece um you know i i I see myself in this business as i don't see anybody reporting to me we work in devonish on the basis that people we look people look to one another for leadership so because how we acknowledge how we engage with one another is very important and I, I'm an incredible, uh, strong believer in uh, developing a culture, and the culture will drive the business. Um, uh, the, the culture that I try, and I, as I say, I try to develop, is around enabling uh, and providing the environment for people to express their absolute ability. And COVID and the COVID crisis, and this is across all our business, whether it's, you know, we have 10 plants across the world. Um, the, my, my colleagues are inspirations to me because of what they've done and how they've dealt with it. Never stopped, never looked up, never complained, said, how do we do it? How do we do it better? So it's funny when you ask me the question, how has it been? Um, if I was Going, if I knew what was coming and I was looking forward, I said, oh, dear, isn't it terrible? Looking back, um, it's been phenomenal because I have phenomenal. I have incredible colleagues. They are first class at what they do. They want to do more of it and they want to build Devonish every day. So it's all I have to do is keep out of the way and let them do it. You obviously, obviously enjoy your role, um, Richard. What would you be doing if you, if you weren't doing this job? Um, farming. Um, I would, um, I do farm. I love to farm at the weekend. Um, uh, I love to farm in the evenings um, and uh, farm with my family. And the fam- my family are very important to me. Um, they've been a huge support to me as well uh, and encouraging me and, 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 and allowing me to do this. But I absolutely love to farm and I love sport. 
And that's the one thing, you know, I, I miss uh, in COVID, the the engagement in sport and the social aspect of sports. So going to matches, supporting teams, um, you know, uh, that, that's been very tough. To, well, tough, it has and it hasn't. It's not tough relative to people who've been sick. But, um, you know, it's, 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 it shows and it gives us an opportunity to really value it. And we should value it more. We didn't value it when we could do it. But no, that's what I would do. Farm, farm, football and Devonish. They're the three things. <laughs> very good. Very good. I think I mean, my, my pastimes aren't particularly different to yours. So I, I totally agree. Um, Richard Kennedy, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating uh, journey to, to, to listen to, to how, how the, you and the company have got to where you are today. And I think a lot of people will appreciate getting the chance to hear. So thanks for your time and hopefully we'll speak again soon. Thank you, David. Quite a story there from Richard about a truly dynamic company. Now, we touched on Brexit in that discussion, and one man who's been delving into the exit detail on behalf of his his members is Michael Bell from NIVDA. To find out how the import and export of goods to and from Northern Ireland has been flowing, I caught up with the industry stalwart. Michael, tell us a bit about what NIVDA does and how it represents its members. Um, We're a trade body We've been operating now for 25 years. This is our, our, our 25th year. And I suppose at its simplest level, we're an industry self-help group. We're a group of over 100 food and drink manufacturers in Northern Ireland, nearly 80% by turnover uh, of the industries in NIFTA. Um, and our job is to support companies, uh, lobby on their behalf, uh, help them to network and build uh support in, in in a really quite a wide range of things that uh, affect their business um, and in fact that's one of our problems has been trying to explain clearly to people outside food what we do because food is very complex uh, industry there are many dimensions to it um, and in some ways for for other trade bodies it's a bit simpler um, for NIFTA, it's a bit more, if you like, below the waterline uh, activity. Um, but I think uh, the testament to the organization is um, after 25 years, we're still growing. And indeed, we're more relevant than ever, um, as uh, we've had a lot of communication with our members recently uh, testifying to that. Obviously, the food business sector has been the poster child of the media's fascination with Brexit and the issues it's caused since the new year. Uh, we're a couple of weeks in, and while we were setting up this podcast, you were taking calls from the BBC, from ITV, all looking for interviews. Um, that's because there's such a big focus on how food is getting in and out of Northern Ireland. Give us a rundown as to where we are now and what your members are facing. Okay. To help people understand it, um, food within these islands had reached... Uh, a commercial equilibrium. In other words, there were trade flows uh, flowing in all directions and the drive behind those trade flows was the most efficient production of food um, to the relevant marketplaces. Brexit has significantly disrupted that and those trade flows are shifting. Um, And uh, as we've said repeatedly, it's very hard to predict exactly how things are going to change 
till the rules absolutely crystallize and we understand just how much bureaucracy is involved with them. Now, that said, um, we're getting on with it. And the fact that there has been as little disruption as there has been is a tribute to uh, my members, uh, to retailers and to others involved in uh, the food industry who have taken all the contingency measures that they could to deal with a set of rules that was handed to industry at the absolute last possible minute. Um, to put this into context, the rules that we were operating to for 40 years changed, but we weren't given the new rule book. And in fact, the completed. And in fact, they're still writing the new rule book. What we are in at the minute is a situation where there are a number of uh, what are called grace periods or derogations to help uh, stop things completely stopping till the rules are finally sorted out. So that's obviously less than optimal. Um, nevertheless, uh, industry uh, is flowing, um, albeit at a reduced level of activity for January. Some of that's normal. Some of that is as a result of stockholding to manage Brexit. Another very important point is that goods out from Northern Ireland to GB and goods inwards from GB to NI are two sides of one coin. In many cases, my members buy uh, raw materials from GB to add to recipes. There may be minor components, there may be significant components, but those are then assembled into finished products, meals, whatever, and supplied back to GB. So this um, artificial distinction between goods coming from GB into NI and goods going from NI to GB, um, it, 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 in our case, we're very heavily invested in both sides of that equation. Now, there's been a lot of talk about stockpiling by food companies at the tail end of last year, and so that the first couple of weeks and months of this year won't see too much disruption. What sort of measures have your members been taking to mitigate against Brexit? Stockpiling is uh, where possible. Um, so critical ingredients that have uh, reasonable shelf life can be stockpiled. But most of what we produce as an industry is fresh, high-quality food. And it, there's very limited capacity to stockpile most of that. Um, having said that, most of our output is flowing successfully into GB. And that's actually really important for GB because Northern Ireland feeds 10 million people. Um, so, you know, there's a there's an element here of feeding the nation, which is really important as well, um, as it being Northern Ireland's largest economic enterprise. The problems will get worse. Uh, as we're speaking in early January, I expect the problems to peak probably late January as the volume of trade rises and the rules continue to get sorted out. Um, we've seen a major supermarket with significant uh, numbers of uh, gaps in the shelves, mainly caused by GB products that can't come in. Uh, that's not in anybody's interest um, because those lorries that bring goods in have to return and the economics of the transport of food across uh, the Irish Sea is a balance between lorries coming in full and lorries going back full. 
Um, so it's, it's, it's really important for us that as far as possible, the commercial equilibrium that existed before Brexit is maintained after Brexit. And the promise of as frictionless as possible a trade is delivered. Now, I know it's hard for you to say at the minute, but what's your gut feeling about getting that equilibrium back? I think we will work towards it. I think there are some pieces of... Uh, I, I think it, it, I am optimistic now that we have a less hostile deal uh, politically between the UK and the EU. Um, some of the regulations that have been introduced are preposterous. And they are pure political bureaucracy that adds cost and no other value. Michael, I know NIVT has been running now for 25 years or so. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, your insight, as always, has been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. From Brexit to chocolate and the first of our agri-food stories, Cobden and Brown, named after a 19th century free trade activist, is an artisan chocolatier based outside Lurgan, producing some of the finest handmade chocolate, which is both wheat and gluten-free. I caught up with founder Caroline McArdle to find out more. My name's Caroline McArdle and I'm the founder of Cobden and Brown. And I do everything in the company. Basically, one minute you're making chocolate bars the next minute you're wrapping chocolate bars you're talking to customers you're then at six o'clock you're, you're mopping the floor again so you know you're doing absolutely everything so it's a small company it's an artisan company and i include myself in everything every aspect of the business so first of all take us back cobden and brown what what do you do what does the company do and 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 how how did it come about it wasn't really supposed to be a business. Um, I know that sounds very, very strange, but Jonathan, our son, was diagnosed with celiac disease. And um, he also had a neg intolerance on top of the whole thing. So there was a lot of food that had to be taken away from his diet. And for over a year or so, he had no chocolate. Um, he'd come into Tesco's with me, you know, typical 10-year-old holding onto the trolley and loads of stuff he couldn't have that he was used to having, you know. And we had sorted out his diet pretty much and he still missed his chocolate treats. So I started to make stuff basically at the kitchen table, working with ingredients and just, you know, investigating everything, how I could get Jonathan some sort of a sweet treat. And I was working with the chocolate and I realized that I needed to go on a short chocolatiering course, which I did. And then out of that, Jonathan was delighted he had loads of chocolate, he had his Easter eggs, he had treats at Christmas one thing and another. And then friends started to ask me, you know, to make their Easter eggs and stuff at Christmas. So I did that. And then a few people said, you know what, this would be really good at a local market. So I took it along to the Argery and um, that was the best thing I could have ever done because when I went to the Argery, um, I met loads of other people that had celiac disease and um, we got talking and sharing recipes and I realized I wasn't the only one, you know, with a son who had this dietary problem. And um, I started to do all, you know, different markets and had great crack out of that. And then a lot of shops and independent 
retailers, they would come along to the markets too and they took a great interest in the product and in bars and they took a great interest in our story and they decided they wanted to stock, you know, small amounts of our chocolate. And um, that was great. It was very, very exciting, but we realised we had to develop our packaging and get that aspect all right, you know, and ready for retail. So that took us a while too. And um, we got that eventually all organised and sorted out. And the rest really, you know, the, sh- the chocolate hit the shelves and um, it, one small shop after the other. We only deal with the independents and um, we're happy with that. We're a small, small batch company and we deal with small local businesses. And that's where we're at at the moment. You've come this far had you had you a background in the food business that 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 made you or was this something completely new to you it was something quite new but um i had a background in sales and a background in graphic design but when jonathan got diagnosed with celiac disease as a mother and a parent i had to step up to the mark and you you know when you have someone with a dietary problem or celiac disease you're constantly investigating ingredients all the time and you're um, changing food and you're looking to replace different ingredients and see how, you know, different recipes work. You supply, you say, just, just the independence as well. Do you do you, um, do you do that on purpose? Do you, would you rather keep the business as an artisan type business rather than, you know, growing it to supply a supermarket or anything else like that? I certainly like to keep the business artisan um, and I really enjoy going into our independent retailers and having a bit of crack and bonder with them all. And supplying the independents, you're actually fairly close to your customers and you hear what your customers, you know, you hear a lot of feedback from them and you hear what they want. And um, it's great. I really enjoy that aspect of it at the moment. Um, but it's not to say that the business wouldn't grow and go that bit further in the future. But um, at the moment with Brexit and everything that's going on, we're just sort of, steering our ship through that storm and <laughs> carrying on as we are as a small business. And and do you sell throughout Northern Ireland? Do you sell down south? Do you sell, I mean, do you sell across the water at all? We sell throughout Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. We have customers in Galway. We have customers in Dublin, Sligo. Um, and we're in pretty much a lot. We're in a lot of the independent retailers throughout Northern Ireland, along with the hamper companies as well. Very good. And what would be your most popular, what's your kind of benchmark product? Our most popular bar is definitely the dark chocolate with the pink Himalayan sea salt and lime. Um, that bar has won a great taste award and it definitely is our most sought after bar of chocolates. Um, we designed and came up with two different hot chocolates as well during the, last, the first lockdown. And they have been incredibly popular as well, um, especially this time of year. It's a real hot chocolate time of year. So they've been very, very popular. I'm sure. I'm sure. And Caroline, this this program has been a lot about Brexit. Um, how has Brexit, because you're obviously having to, you're having to import uh, cocoa and I imagine sugar as well. Um, how has, how has, has Brexit impacted your business and particularly, I suppose, with, with your exports? Yes, of course, Brexit has imported us greatly. I mean, it would be mad to say it hasn't. I mean, most of our ingredients come through, come from Europe through GB. And um, 
shipping and ports and everything have been disaster in the last three weeks. You know, we're waiting on packaging coming through, ingredients coming through. But, you know, nothing's easy at the start. And I imagine, you know, we get we get there in the end, you know, it will sort itself out. But the next couple of months is going to be difficult. <laughs> but um, when we get through it, I'm sure. We're organised at this end, so we're just waiting on everything to come through. And it truly is a family business, um, I take it. It really is a family business. I mean, everybody gets stuck in, <laughs> you know, when it's busy. You know, whether it's making bars or whether it's wrapping or, you know, getting deliveries done. Um, we have, we have, we do have staff that come in, but the family is at the heart of it. And you can tell just by the way you talk about the business that you, you know, you, you really do, do like it. I haven't, tr- I know you've sent me some chocolate. I haven't had a chance to try it yet, but I, I really am looking forward to it arriving in the post. Uh, hopefully tomorrow with, with any luck, but particularly the, the, the Himalayan salt one sounds amazing. So I'm really looking forward to trying it. Well, I hope they arrive soon. <laughs> so do I. Uh, Caroline, a brilliant, uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant business. Um, I know so many true fans of, of your chocolate. Um, and I hope that, uh, you know, the business goes from strength to strength and we can have you on the podcast again in a year's time to hear how, you, how you've got on. But uh, yeah, businesses like yours that really keep this sector sector alive. So thank you for your time and uh, good, very good luck in the future. Thank you, David. Thank you for including us in your podcast today. It's great to hear from you. Thank you. My delivery from Caroline has since arrived and I can confirm that Cobden and Brown is indeed some of the best chocolate you'll ever taste. Now, with that, our first episode of the Fifth Quarter podcast comes to a close. I hope you'd have enjoyed it. And please do get in touch if you want to tell us your story or anything else. I'd like to thank Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavonborough Council for their support and to all our contributors for their very precious time. Thanks for listening and look out for next month's episode.